Welcome back to the Frozen Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. I do want to give a trigger warning before we start. This episode will briefly discuss infant mortality. But one of the purposes of this podcast is to shed light on some of the unsung heroes of this time period. And I think it's safe to say that women's were hands down the most neglected when it comes to celebrating the people who shaped the frontier. So today we're going to look at the roles women played both in the fur trade and on the frontier. We're also going to see what women were pioneering elsewhere in the world. Let's start with the original trappers and traders of the wild Canadian frontier, since that's where the North American fur trade began. For the sake of simplicity, the phrase mountain man will refer to trappers, traders, brokers, voyagers, and generally any man involved in the fur trade. It was common for the French and later the British, the Scottish, and the Irish mountain men to marry indigenous wives. Companies like Hudson's Bay Company actually frowned upon it, but they couldn't really stop it from happening. Sometimes these marriages were performed by a man of the European cloth and deemed as legal in the eyes of the church. But more often than not, there were no preachers or priests around, and the couple simply exchanged vows between themselves or held a Native American ceremony. These marriages were not considered legal in the eyes of the European institutions, and these women were referred to as quote-unquote country wives. Considering that at this time there were absolutely no white women on the continent, these mountain men really didn't have much else to work with. Some of them did have wives and children back home, But most of the men who entered this trade were young and single. So these country wives would travel with their husbands and the company into the wilderness. And they would do all the wifely things that wives do, like cook and clean and mend and make clothes, sew new moccasins and make robes for their husbands. But they did so much more than that. They brokered deals with the native tribes. They taught the mountain men wilderness survival skills. And they administered mountain medicine to the sick and injured men. They served as guides and interpreters for the fur companies. And they created the trade goods that the fur companies used to obtain more furs. These women were the workforce behind the scenes that made the fur companies successful. And generally, their mountain man husband was faithful, monogamous, and spoiled them rotten. We have journal entries that say that the men were so proud of their native wives that they held beauty contests at the rendezvous every year, and they proudly touted their wives' skills. Jim Bridger famously was very proud of his multicolored blanket that his native wife made for him, earning him the nickname Blanket Chief. Now, from the woman's point of view, it was a status upgrade to be married to a European. While her family is at home cooking their meal in a buffalo stomach, she's using that nice new kettle he gave her. And the family of the bride was extremely proud to have their daughter be so well-connected. Most importantly, she could now serve as the voice of her people when it came to trade agreements and treaties. And as wives are often expected to do, they bore children for their mountain man husbands. These children, being half-native and half-white, were collectively called Métis. It didn't matter if the father was French, Scottish, or whatever. They were half-native and half-white. Therefore, they were Métis. 
This Métis community is still alive and well today in Canada, and these children would have had the best of both worlds. Not only were they bilingual, they had a unique perspective of both cultures, and that would shape much of modern-day Canada. Now, in 1602, things were about to change. This is the year that the first white woman set foot in New France. Her name was Francois-Marie Jacqueline de la Tour, and she took up residence in a place called Acadia. Imagine being the only white woman on a whole continent of men. The Roanoke colonists wouldn't arrive for another six years in 1608, and the Mayflower wouldn't arrive until 1609. She was it. But soon, between the years of 1602 and the 1630s, more and more white women would immigrate from Europe, but still not in great numbers. It was still a ratio of six men to one woman at this point. So France's King Louis XIV struck upon an idea. He sponsored a group of young ladies in France to relocate to Acadia. He would pay their way, provide them with a dowry, and give them a beautiful new gown to arrive in. All they had to do was sign a marriage contract and go forth and multiply. Incidentally, as soon as they tied the knot, that dowry became her husband's property. But, you know, this is at a time in Europe where there are very few opportunities for a girl to do something adventurous. So it was a major opportunity for most of them. And generally, they found their new man to be agreeable enough. Some actually found them to be coarse and uncouth. A few of them even reneged on the contract and stayed single after they arrived, while even more of them hightailed it back to their families in France. But generally, these girls took it in stride and made the best of their new lives. And it worked. The population started increasing exponentially. In fact, over the course of the next 10 years... 852 young ladies would make that harrowing three-month journey by sea to this new life. Some of them did die on the trip, and some of them just couldn't handle becoming a rural wife having to toil every day on this wild frontier. These women are known collectively as the Filet du Roy, or the King's Daughters. And from those brave and rugged women who not only survived but prospered, an estimated 20 million Canadians and Americans today can trace themselves back to these women's success, myself included. And these women aren't just housewives. Canadian immigrant women are starting to shape their communities. In 1639, the first Catholic girls' school is opened in Quebec by a woman named Marie de la Incarnation. Two years later, in 1641, a woman named Jean Mance opens the first hospital in Montreal. And while these women are building Canada, women on the east coast of what will become the U.S. are working hard to improve their own lives. They're taking up occupations like baking, sewing, and weaving. In fact, by 1701, women are serving on juries in the state of New York. But in early colonial society, married women didn't have any rights. They couldn't vote. They couldn't own property, and everything they did have, themselves and their children included, belonged to their husbands. Interestingly, in native cultures, the opposite was true. The tribes were often matrilineal, meaning they traced their ancestry through their mother's line. 
women had a say in the planning and the administration of a tribe, and women were treated as respected elders. The Lenape, the Mohican, the Iroquois, the Cherokee, just to name a few, they all held women in higher esteem than the white folks did. And women generally had more rights in the tribe than the white woman did. In some tribes, if a philandering man came home to find his stuff piled in front of the teepee, he could consider himself divorced. White women did not have that same luxury. Unless the man completely abandoned her, as was the case of Anne Clark in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1643, she generally couldn't file for divorce. For the record, Anne Clark goes down in history as the first divorcee in the United States. But if a woman was single and owned property, she generally had more rights than a married woman. Until the moment she got married, and then she lost it all. In fact, in 1648, a single woman named Margaret Brent owned her own property, and even served as a lawyer for Lord Baltimore. And the state of Maryland still refused to give her certain rights, like voting. It wasn't until 1756 when a recently widowed Lydia Taft was permitted to vote in her husband's place, that women were even considered for it. And though she does go down in history as the first woman to vote, she had to give her husband's opinion, not her own. And for a while, single women who owned property, whether she be black or white, did get to vote. In fact, in 1776, when New Jersey was adopting their constitution, Single women, both black and white, and black men were allowed to weigh in on it. The biggest problem came when those single women who had a taste of being equal got married and lost the rights to everything. They became their husband's property and they no longer had a say in their own lives. Then in 1777, the states began to take away certain people's rights to vote, including all women and anyone not white. This ushers in the women's suffrage and the equal rights movements. But before we get to the women who pioneered equal rights back east, let's look at the women in the West who were creating a nation. In the history classes of most schools, the same names appear again and again. For example, Sacagawea. She was a Shoshone woman who, at the age of 14, was kidnapped by a rival tribe and sold as a slave to the French trader Toussaint Charbonneau. Lewis and Clark met up with Charbonneau and Sacagawea on their expedition to map out the West. Not only did she serve as a guide and an interpreter for this expedition, she did it with a newborn strapped to her back. And you've probably all heard the story of how she single-handedly saved the explorer's bacon when one of their canoes capsized, and she retrieved all of their important documents, their equipment, their medicines, and their provisions, and she got herself and her newborn to safety. Yet, there's another woman whose name isn't taught in schools, at least not in America. Her name is Thana Delther. She was a Chippewayan woman who was kidnapped by a rival tribe along with another woman in her tribe. These two managed to escape their captors and spent an entire year in the wilderness trying to get home. When her friend died of exposure and starvation, Thana Delther carried on until nearing death herself. She was eventually discovered by some hunters of the Hudson's Bay Company. She was rescued and she signed on with the company as a guide and an interpreter. 
and she was instrumental in brokering a truce between the Cree tribe and the Dene tribe, ending centuries of hostilities. We living historians understand the trials and the tribulations of the white man during the fur trade era. But what do you know of the white mountain women of the fur trade? Did you even know there were any white mountain women? In all fairness, the Canadians probably did know this. The three most famous of them come from Montreal. These three sisters were Métis, so they were half-white. And their father was a French trader named Jean-Baptiste Marcot, and their mother was an Ottawa woman. Now, all three sisters married mountain men, and when their husbands were killed in various conflicts, each woman stepped into the role of trapper and trader in the western Michigan area. The most famous of them was Magdalene Marcot Le Frambois. She ran an independent chain of trading posts, and she competed with the big names of the day like Northwest Company and the American Fur Company. In fact, she did so well, she was bringing in five to $10,000 annually over the course of her 10-year run. Eventually, she sold her company for a boatload of cash to the American Fur Company, and she retired to a very comfortable life on Mackinac Island. Some of the women had the benefit of fathers who taught them the tricks of the trade, like these Marco sisters. Others had dads who taught them skills that saved their lives. One such frontiersman taught his daughter his tradecraft. Daniel Boone's daughter Jemima was canoeing with her friend near their Kentucky homestead when a Shawnee raiding party stumbled upon them. They snatched the girls up and whisked them away. Well, having the country's premier tracking expert for a dad certainly paid off. Jemima broke twigs, scuffed the ground, and she left a, a veritable breadcrumb trail of leaves and berries as they were hustled along. Within two days, Daniel Boone and his tracking party had caught up to the girls and rescued them from their captors. One can certainly attribute her quick thinking to the teachings of her father, but you also have to acknowledge that she had her mother's strength in the face of adversity. Rebecca Boone was a tough lady. She raised ten kids on the wild frontier of Kentucky, often alone while Daniel was out doing his thing. They moved three times during her life, each time to somewhere more remote than the last. If you're ever looking for a good biography to read, this lady will not disappoint you. Now, it's a rare thing for a young woman in a relatively civilized East to look at the frontier life and say, yes, that's what I want to do. Some were following their husbands and doing the dutiful wife thing. But for some, like Narcissa Whitman, they saw this relocation as a spiritual calling. Narcissa married a man named Marcus Whitman, who was a missionary and a doctor. The two of them traveled to present-day Walla Walla, Washington, to establish a missionary to aid and educate local natives. They actually visited the 1836 rendezvous, and Narcissa's journal entries are one of the few documents we have that gives a woman's point of view of these events. She kept wonderfully detailed journals of her travels throughout this untamed land. In one entry on July 27, 1836, just days after she left the Mountain Man Rendezvous, she writes, Do not think I regret coming. No, far from it. I am contented and happy. Notwithstanding, I sometimes get very hungry and weary. Have six weeks' steady journey before us. 
feels sometimes as if it were a long time to be traveling. Long for rest, but must not murmur. She opened a school for the Métis children of the trappers and traders, as well as for the local Cayuse Indian children. The most notable people in the area sent their children to Narcissa for a formal education, including frontiersman Kit Carson, Jim Bridger, and Joe Meek. Unfortunately, in 1847, the Cayuse tribes had grown tired of the preaching and the white diseases that were decimating their villages, and they attacked the Whitman mission. Both Whitmans were killed, as was many of their staff. The students were taken hostages to be sold as slaves. Jim Bridger's daughter Mary was among them. Mary and several others were rescued within a few days, but Mary succumbed to the injuries she had received and she died soon after rescue. Another missionary couple who had traveled west with the Whitmans were Henry and Eliza Spaulding. They established their mission in the Lapway Indian country in present-day Idaho. And here, they successfully ministered to the Nez Perce tribes and continued on for 10 years. But when they heard about the Whitman Massacre, they chose to return to the safety of civilization. So, for some women, it was a higher calling that made them attempt to tame the wilderness. But for some, it was sheer anger. In the case of Anne Trotter Bailey, She was happily married to a frontiersman and a militiaman named Richard Trotter in Staunton, Virginia. When he was killed in 1774, Anne donned her best petticoat, a pair of buckskin pants, and dropped her son off at the neighbor's house. She took Richard's rifle, tomahawk, and hunting knife, and she went looking for revenge. Acting as a scout and a messenger for the militia, she rode hundreds of miles delivering gunpowder and intelligence. When the war was over, she married one of the elite rangers named John Bailey that she had met during her time in service. She continued to act as a courier until he was killed. Then she lived out her remaining days in the solitude of the wilderness. Another famous femme fatale of the frontier was Molly Brandt. She was the daughter of a Mohawk chief born in upstate New York. When she was just 18 years old, she accompanied her father to Philadelphia to discuss the government's shady land dealings. Suffice us to say, it must have given her some strong opinions about corruption within the burgeoning American government. She fell in love with a British officer, and while the government's new laws forbade him from marrying her legally because of the color of her skin, she did bear him nine children, and then managed his vast estates in the Mohawk Valley of New York. When the Revolutionary War broke out, she's the one who convinced the Iroquois Confederacy to side with the British. Then she served as a spy and provided food and shelter and ammunition to the Loyalist forces. When they found themselves on the losing side of that war, she and the Loyalists fled to Canada and they formed the city of Kingston. And sometimes a woman just had to do what a woman had to do. When Orkney native Isabel Gunn was jilted by her lover because he had bigger plans on the new continent, she followed him to Canada. Mind you, this is no small feat for a woman to gain passage across a three-month-long ocean, but she was not about to give up. Now, some sources say she was following her big brother after hearing his stories of the wild Canadian frontier, but more people lean towards the jilted lover story. Anyways... 
This young lady donned a pair of leather breeches, and using the name John Fubister, she signs on with Hudson's Bay Company for a three-year contract at eight pounds sterling a year. That's a phenomenal amount of money for a woman to earn. She worked, ate, and slept day and night with these men for a year and a half, covering nearly 2,000 miles of wilderness, and they never knew she was a girl. Well, one man knew, apparently. John Scarth was his name, and the jig was up in December of 1807, when Isabel Gunn, a.k.a. John Fubister, delivered Scarth's baby boy. She was summarily fired and forbade to ever work with men again. They packed her and her son up and shipped them back to Orkney, where she reportedly died in abject poverty. While Narcissa Whitman and Eliza Spaulding were the first white women to cross the Rocky Mountains on foot, another woman named Mary Donahoe had beat them by three years to the West itself. In 1833, she and her husband William and their nine-month-old daughter were trekking the Santa Fe Trail. At the far end, they set up an inn that they named La Fonda. Women still couldn't own property in these days, so the inn was in William's name, but Mary managed and ran that inn for years alone while he was out on trading expeditions. And she did this while raising five children. Another woman named Susan Shelby McGoffin would cross the Santa Fe Trail 13 years later, and she kept a detailed diary that gives us a peek into what a woman went through in this dust-covered land. Most of these women journaled about the lack of refuge from the world of men. It was the same tedious grinding day every day, which was occasionally punctuated with a happy event like a church event, or more often by a traumatic one. They had no escape. Narcissa Whitman wrote about having to cook with so many men underfoot. She writes, They are so filthy they require a great deal of cleaning wherever they go, and this wears a woman fast. Susan Shelby McGoffin wrote about how she tried to adapt to the native ways and how much she enjoyed their afternoon naps called siestas. Women of this era faced all the same trials men did. Biting flies, dust and dirt, injuries, mosquito swarms, drastic temperatures, the fear of the environment like wild animal attacks, hostile natives drowning. But unlike men, she would also have to deal with nursing infants, squalling toddlers, bickering children, and eye-rolling preteens. She would have been the nurse for the elderly, the injured, and the ill. She would have had this added worry of preventing accidents and injuries. I find it easy to believe that the stupid stuff that men do today was probably done back then as well, particularly when alcohol is involved. And she couldn't just rush him to the emergency room. She had to deal with these major traumas herself. But one of the greatest pains she would ever face was the loss of a child. Any one of us who has gone through this terrible tragedy, even in modern times, can relate to that. Add to it that this woman must prepare her lost child for burial, and in some cases even dig the child's grave herself. That's enough to make a strong woman collapse. With the child mortality rate being between 50 and 75%, she had to face this trauma over and over again. 
We know that the women stuck together and they formed their own support groups as much as they were able. I actually envision strangers becoming dear friends in situations where it's them against the world. Actually, what I envision is some of these Oregon Trail pioneer women exchanging smirks and rolling their eyes when they overhear what bright idea their man has come up with this time. So there's no doubt whatsoever that women faced the same trials the men did, plus had the compounded responsibility to keep everyone happy, healthy, and not killing each other on these journeys from hell. Let's add one more straw to that camel's back. Pregnancy. Imagine how much your normal pregnancy backache today would have been amplified after a full day of riding in a jostling, jolting wagon with no shocks, or after a day's ride through the mountains in search of new beaver trapping grounds. Susan Shelby McGoffin writes, I do think a woman, embarrasso, meaning pregnant, has a hard time of it, some sickness all the time, heartburn, headache, cramps, etc. After all, this thing of marrying is not what it's cracked up to be. Now, Susan Shelby McGoffin lost her first pregnancy in the second trimester on her 19th birthday, probably due to a carriage rollover accident that she had experienced a few weeks earlier. Pregnancy opened a woman up to all sorts of new problems. This was an era before immunizations and clean delivery rooms. Diseases were poorly understood and hygiene was nearly non-existent. In fact, Susan Shelby herself contracted yellow fever, and it caused her to deliver her second child early. The little boy died shortly after. And the good Lord help any woman who suffered any one of the myriad of conditions that can affect a woman right after delivery. Childbed, or childbirth fever, as it was called back then, is when the woman develops an infection of the placental site in the uterus, and that infects the bloodstream causing sepsis. Today, we treat it with antibiotics and avoid it altogether with improved hygiene and sterile birthing environments. But this is an era before people knew what germs were. In fact, at a maternity clinic in Vienna, Austria, between the years of 1846 and 1849, up to 40% of women delivering died of childbed fever. And that was in a fairly clean hospital. Imagine the mortality rates on the dirt-covered frontier. With childbed fever, the mother usually died in agony within days of delivery. We know that Jim Bridger lost three wives to this fever, as did many of the other trappers, traders, and voyagers. So let's say our intrepid woman survived the pregnancy, survived the birth, and has now added a hungry infant to her already large family. It wasn't uncommon to have a child every year or every other. Remember, birth control wasn't a thing yet. And their concept of, as long as you're breastfeeding, you can't get pregnant, wasn't really true. Some Native women had knowledge of plants that would prevent or get rid of a pregnancy. But these white women weren't plant-savvy yet. So now you have a woman who is barely 30, with a mini-bus load of children, a man who is frequently out hunting or trading, a cow to milk, chickens to feed, water and wood to haul, laundry to wash and mend, a garden to get in, butter to churn, bread to bake, food to preserve for the winter, and dinner to make for all of these hungry mouths. Why don't we look at her mental health? 
Many journals and diaries of this era talk of the loneliness and the seclusion these women felt. They speak of depression and homesickness. My husband was deployed overseas for a year, and I felt completely overwhelmed. And my mother was a phone call away. Imagine being so far disconnected from your support network and feeling like you were taking on the world alone. You'd have no one to lean on for help. One woman's journal struck me particularly hard. Her name was Cecilia McMillan Adams, and she traveled with her family on the Oregon Trail in the summer of 1852. This is just a snippet of her entries. June 25th, passed seven graves, made 14 miles. June 26th, passed eight graves. June 29th, passed 10 graves. Then it goes on and on until it gets to July 11th. 15 graves in a 13-mile stretch. If you add all of these graves up that this woman has passed on her journey, she reaches the hundreds. So besides the physical aspects of being constantly road-weary, dirty, and hungry, now there's this constant visual reminder of the likelihood that you'll probably be dead before the end of it all. I hope you can see how this would wear a woman down. And sometimes the woman did crack. Prairie fever, as it was called back then, was a madness usually attributed to isolation. One famous case of prairie fever was an Oregon Trail traveler named Elizabeth Markham. Six of her children had already died before the age of three. And then she and her husband Sam and their eight-year-old son John take this grueling cross-country trip from hell. Somewhere along the Snake River Canyon in present-day Idaho, she had had enough. She refused to go on. Her husband Sam starts arguing with her, but she flat-out refuses. So in a fit of anger, he goes on without her. After a bit, he starts to feel guilty. So he sends eight-year-old John back to check on her. For an hour, Sam waits. Then another hour. Finally, Elizabeth comes walking up alone. When Sam asks where the boy is, she flatly states she beat him to death with a rock. Sam rushed back to find the boy at death's door. While he was away... Elizabeth set fire to the family wagon. Thankfully, Sam returned in time to save everything, and the party did continue on to Oregon. In fact, Elizabeth went on to have two more children before Sam just couldn't deal with her crazy anymore. He filed for divorce and moved to California, leaving all of these children there with her. Little John did survive, and he suffered at her hands for the rest of his life. While prairie madness or prairie fever isn't a clinical diagnosis today, it had all the benchmarks of things we are familiar with today, including depression, withdrawal, violent outbursts, self-harm, sudden character changes. Remember that network of women she made friends with on the journey? They've all set up homesteads miles away from each other. Transportation in that day didn't allow a woman to just pop on over to Esther's for tea and crumpets. Lunch dates weren't a thing. The closest these women got to seeing their friends was at a church event or a special gathering, like a wedding or a funeral. And many major towns were at a minimum 15 to 20 miles from the homestead, so getting supplies was an all-day affair. 
if the man was gone all day and something terrible happened to one of the children, that poor woman had to endure it alone until he returned. Some journals tell us of something traumatic befalling a child and the mother being stark raving mad by the time the father got back. And something else to consider was what we today would call seasonal affective disorder. During the summer months, people are outside doing chores, getting their share of sunshine and fresh air. But when the long cold winter months came, you were holed up with these people 24-7 in a small dark house with little fresh air for months on end. On the prairies particularly, where the landscape is exceptionally flat, with very few trees to break up the landscape, a heavy snowfall would leave a stark, blinding, endless sea of nothing. It was also common on the prairies for snow to cover the houses by several feet, effectively entrapping the family inside. I love my children dearly, but a week snowbound with my youngest, and even I would begin to doubt my sanity. This is also happening in a time when people do not understand mental health. Patients showing signs of what they then called lunacy were simply institutionalized in appalling conditions. Now, some women, like Dorothea Lind Dix, made it their life's work to remedy this. In 1841, she was going to teach a Bible class at the local Boston jail when she got her first glimpse of the mentally insane and how poorly they were treated. And that woman spent the rest of her days establishing new mental health facilities and getting the existing ones up to snuff. Other women would become guardian angels of infirmaries, like Florence Nightingale, who was reforming British military hospitals and defining what nursing should be in the 1850s. Or Clara Barton, born in Massachusetts in 1821, who would become the angel of the Civil War battlefields, and show how field hospitals in America should operate. She would also go on to create the American Red Cross. Sometimes, though, these women had an internal conflict with what may seem inappropriate behavior. One woman named Miriam Davis tells of the time her husband and children were all very ill, and the milk cow had run off. Knowing she had to retrieve it quickly, she rushed out and takes off down the road after this cow. A neighbor sees her half running down the road and he offers his horse. She said that she stood there a very long time debating what her family and friends would think of her if she rode the horse astride like a man, as opposed to side saddle as a proper woman should. For the record, she did ride the horse astride and shocked her husband to his core when she reappeared leading the milk cow. Some women suffered through all of this only to have their philandering husbands abandon them. If he was kind enough to divorce her first, she could remarry, often to a widower or a man who had also been deserted and who had children in need of a mother. So this remarriage would compound her plight by introducing more children into the mix. If the louse didn't give her a divorce before he ran off, she'd have to appeal to the government for one. And you think the wheels of justice move slowly today? This was a years-long process, and she wasn't guaranteed to get one in the end. And abandonment did happen. Some men abandoned their white families back east for native wives, or abandoned their native wives when they hung up their traps and headed home. 
And some abandoned their native wives as more and more European women came onto the scene. In one case, the man ditched his native wife, took her children with him, and left for Europe, then forced his previous wife to raise his half-breed children, which she was not happy about. Women also abandoned their men. Having had enough of the loneliness, the unending workload, the screaming baby, and whatever else was on her plate, she'd pack her bag and take the first coach headed east, never to be seen again. If a woman was widowed or abandoned, there was seldom anyone willing to step in and provide for her family. Most of them had their own issues they were dealing with. And while older children certainly contributed more than they do today, like with chores and childcare, the stress of all this rested squarely on her shoulders. Legislation did try to set things right. In the Oregon Donation Land Act of 1850, a widowed or abandoned woman could claim 320 acres, half of the couple's 640-acre allotment, as her own. Then when the act expired in 1855 and the government didn't renew it, all these women were left hanging in limbo. In fact, women back east had been fussing about this problem for the last 20 years. Certain states, like Mississippi, did allow women to own property with their husband's permission. Other states granted women the rights to some things, but not others. So depending on what state you lived in, you may or may not be allowed to do certain things. Then in 1848, the Declaration of Sentiments was signed in Seneca Falls, New York, and it called for the end of discrimination against women nationwide. Women began standing up for equal rights, not just for themselves, but for all people, black, white, men and women alike. Names like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth. These women are burning down the old bridges and building new ones that now support women. They began to change society, like the 1850s patent that Canadian Ruth Adams obtained for her new wood stove idea, or how Julia Ward Howe wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic in 1861. All around the world, women are stepping up and they're making their marks. They're changing history. Emily Bronte is in England writing The Wuthering Heights in 1847, and her sister Charlotte's writing Jane Eyre that same year. Heck, a hundred years prior, Florence MacDonald was spiriting the Bonnie Prince Charlie away from the Battle of Culloden. And in 1837, an 18-year-old woman named Victoria is being crowned queen of the United Kingdom. Women are changing history. In 1847, a Massachusetts woman named Maria Mitchell discovered a comet and became the first woman ever elected as a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In fact, she was a professor at Vassar College in New York by 1865. Elizabeth Blackwell becomes the first woman to receive a medical degree in the U.S. in Geneva, New York, after years of being denied an education on the grounds that she was intellectually inferior because of her gender. Mary Musgrove, the 1700s fur trader's wife who negotiated the avoidance of war. Mary Shelley in her 1818 novel Frankenstein. Molly Pitcher, who manned the gun her husband was firing when he fell dead. 
So, so many other women deserve a mention that this episode could go on indefinitely. But the bottom line is this. If you were to look up the women who made America, you'd see the names of Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth, and those others. What you don't see is the women who actually made America. The countless women who somehow held it together in a fierce and unforgiving wilderness full of endless perils, constant heartbreaks, and zero comforts. These women, some whose names we'll never know, these are the women who built America. It's them we should think of in honor on this Mother's Day. Because without them, the mothers of this country, this country would be a very different place. This holiday is a time to honor the women in our lives who do all those thankless jobs that keep the family going. And in this day and age of modern conveniences, doing things the old-fashioned way, as if on an off-grid homestead, it's just as tough now as it was 200 years ago. One of those amazing women in my life is my sister-in-law, Annette. She gave up the insanity of modern life to do things the hard way on a primitive off-grid homestead called Our Way Farm in New York. And she's done a remarkable job, and quite honestly, she's my hero. I guess her husband probably helps him. But you women who have built yourselves a primitive homestead in the truest sense of the word, my hat's off to you. And to all the moms out there, enjoy your special day. And thanks for doing all the thankless things that you do. That's it for this episode of Furs and Frontiers podcast. I hope you all enjoy your Mother's Day special. Be sure to check out the website at fursandfrontiers.com and join us in a few weeks for another episode. Happy Mother's Day, everybody, and keep your powder dry. Thank you.